0: Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in the fifth verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Cor. The New Testament reading is found in Romans thirteen, eight through ten. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, my name is Liz. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Mark 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one one another, and seeing that, he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said, He is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And, that, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: Please stay standing as we pray. Lord, we love you, and as we approach your word now, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand, that we would turn to you, that you would heal us, that you would make us alive, truly alive, with the life and the love of Christ in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. I have the privilege and honor of uh, of bringing this the 14th week of this Mark series that we've been in. So pretty much 2016, Mark. And this this is week 14. There'll be two more weeks and then Mother's Day uh, we'll be kicking off a new series. Glenn will be back next week. Uh, he's out of town uh, attending a conference, actually attending, which is rare for him to be able to be poured into and soak up uh, and kind of recharge in that way instead of be the one who's the speaker. So pray for him and Holly's with him on that trip as well. So pray for them both as they refresh themselves this week. Um, we in Mark uh, are landing in chapter 12. If you guys have your Bibles, open them up. If you have to unlock your phone to get there, that's cool too. Um, there's something dynamic that, that's going to happen today. If you actually have your physical Bible, you'll be able to see. Because, because chapters and verse numbers and all that stuff wasn't added until about 1600, um, right around the Gutenberg Bible Press printing time. Because when they were able to print, they needed a way to, if we're going to mass produce this, how do we refer? Um, if it's going to be for the common person, how do we make sure that there's a reference number? So, so sometimes the stories, they get clustered a bit a bit weird. So for instance, in this chapter, um, the entire chapter of, of Mark 12 is one, one whole story, but that actually starts at the end of Mark chapter 11. So that chapter title can cut us off from where does the story start, where does it end, and kind of get us confused in that. So we're diving into Mark 12, which is actually going to start in Mark 11. It's going to end at the end of Mark 12, um, and it's going to hinge, the, the entire story and the series of stories hinges on what is the most important commandment, which we heard as our gospel reading in this scribe who comes up. Um, I want to give a little story before we dive into even this and, and talk about the whole of the book of Mark in general. Uh, if, I don't know if you've ever thought about how did the Bible come to us or how did the individual books, poems, and letters of the Bible come to us, but in general, God did not one day overwhelm someone. They fell out in the spirit. There was a modesty cloth that got covered on them. Their hands started wiggling, and then they woke up and said, wow, that's pretty good. We should put that in the canon, man. That's revelation. Don't preach. Not really how it happened. Most likely, someone was in such an intimate relationship with God that the revelation was so stirred in them that there was some sort of truth that they wanted to purvey, Back to God is in you know, the poems and David's praising God. Or maybe to the fellow man. And the book of Mark is no different than that. Mark is writing, and he's writing not just a, a, an account of history. I want you to think, and we've been talking about this, Mark is writing a story. The same kind of story and action and plot and theme and character development, some of those things that you would expect from Lord of the Rings or the Harry Potters or whatever it is, you should be able to expect from the book of Mark or Matthew, Luke, Acts, all of those. They're they're developing and they're picking parts of Jesus' life. So a real historical Jesus, real events, and they're picking parts of his life and what he said, and they're crafting a story that is then presented to us and... As part of it, that story should elicit a little, a little rise from us at certain points. And, and Mark is possibly the best example of this because when he talks, he talks so theatrically and so grandiosely that, you know, it's, all of a sudden somebody gets healed or they rise from the dead and then Jesus goes, shh, don't tell anybody. Why? You just raise the dude from the dead and you don't want to say anything about it? You just cast out a demon and you, you don't want anybody to know what's going on? That's Mark's way of saying, I'm trying to get a rise out of you, the reader. What, what am I trying to stir in you? What emotions are moted because I'm, I'm writing in this certain style of, Shh, the silent gospel, don't tell anybody. Or when he says, immediately, you should be caught up. We've said it a number of times, probably 42 times. Immediately, the next thing happens. Immediately they go on to the next part and the next story. And you're supposed to get caught up in a narrative that's, that's exciting, uh, that's kind of adventurous, that's what, what is going on and who is? and ah. So within that context, Jesus is presented to us in the very beginning. Mark does not include the, the birth story. What he includes is a, a number of themes that string through the entire book of Mark. And uh, themes such as... Jesus shows up, John the Baptist, he gets baptized, and you hear the heavens open up and God say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. If that didn't tee everybody off to what was going on, I, I, like, it seems as though like, that, that was super clear. Like, what, did you want a voice? Yeah, well, you got one. Are you still not sure of who this guy is? But something in the book of Mark, they keep on, he keeps on stringing out this theme of the authority of Jesus. And as it goes through, he's talking about the authority of Jesus um, as the Son of God, the, the power of God, the authority of Jesus, let's say, over demons and the demonic, the authority of Jesus over creation when he stills uh, the, the storm, the authority of Jesus over sickness when he's, when he's healing the sick. So you're seeing this theme of authority on who Jesus really is being strung out through the whole book of Mark. There's other themes that you see that Mark plays around. So if it's not Jesus, it's kind of focusing on one of two sides of the road. It's either kind of the religious Pharisees, or on the other side would be the disciples. And the disciples are the ones who are kind of getting it, and the religious Pharisees are the ones who are totally missing it. So those themes string through the entire book of Mark. And when it comes to the disciples, they're getting it, but it's like they're, they're still arriving Because even if they're at the baptism and they hear the voice, they're still going, okay, but who's this guy actually? And then he calms the storm and they go, who is this guy? And it's continual revelation that Mark is stringing out. This is who Jesus is. This is what it means that he's the son of God. This is what it means that he is God incarnate. And so they're getting it. The other part is the Pharisees who completely, they don't just miss it. They, they're actually hostile towards it. What, whatever this is that Jesus is showing up in the scene, whenever they're around, they're constantly sitting in the corners, watching what's going on, or, or coming and, and, and pushing his authority. And they're going, all right, we've got to figure out a way to kill this guy because he's stirring up a bunch of crazy mojo, and people are following him instead of us, and we just need to trap him. We need to trap him in what he's saying or what he's doing because if we can do that, if we can figure out what heresy he's committing... Then we can stone him and kill him. Okay, how do we do that? So the disciples who are getting it, the Pharisees, the religious who are resisting it, and Jesus who is continually being revealed as the Son of God. So those are themes that run through the entire book of Mark. If you read it, you'll see Mark weave and navigate in and out of those themes. And so we land in this chapter... Starting in 11, but then going through the end of 12, and we see, it would almost be, we should be able to expect kind of these things happening. And lo and behold, we do. Starting in 11, verse 27, and they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or, who gave you this authority to do them? And so Jesus, the scene opens, what scene are we in? We're in this temple scene, we're in the book of Mark, we're in this narrative story revealing who Jesus is, and we land in this temple scene, and from this point, in the verse, or chapter 11 through 12, this is one scene in the temple. So he's in the temple the whole time, and every conversation, and every comment that he makes, everything that happens happens. It's this scene. So think of that in movie lenses. We we're not going anywhere else. It's not because oh, there's a subheading in my Bible. It's a different story. All the same thing, right? Um, so, so in this in this scene, he comes in. And they they do exactly what they've been doing the whole time. What authority are you doing these things by? Like what what are you doing? And and whose authority do you even have to do them? All right, okay. deal with you guys again, you Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. Riddle me this: John's baptism was it from God or from man? They get on the side. Oh, well, we're kind of afraid of the people because they really liked that guy, so it can't be from God. But we don't really agree, so we can't say from man. Um, hey, we don't know. All right, great. Well, I'm not going to tell you by which authority I'm doing these things. Then so that's the opening of the scene. Them challenging his authority. It carries on from there, and the first eight-ish chapters of Mark, the first half. Focus on the first three years of Jesus' life. They are events that are strung out in a very kind of open time frame. The last half of Mark really focuses, let's say for numbers' sake, on the last three weeks of his life. So they go from the first half kind of establishing is, to last, and they're, he's changing the perspective, condensing the time frame, and he starts turning the focus towards the crucifixion, his death, resurrection and kind of the age and the world to come. And Glenn will talk a lot about that next week because that's what 13 tackles, Mark 13. And so we're in the midst of this and they're coming and they're challenging his authority. He tells them a great answer. They go, okay, we don't know. And so then he starts going, okay, great. I got the floor, perfect. Guess what? Let me tell you a parable of a tenant, and his, he hires a bunch of guys, and they're abusive, and they're not doing what they're supposed to, and so I send a messenger, and I send a messenger, and they keep beating him up, and I say, well, finally, I'm going to send my son, and for surely they'll respect him, and they'll see him, and they go, well, if we kill him, then we can take the, the, the vineyard, so let's go ahead and kill him, um, and he, he starts, it's the same thing, you're, tr- you're tracking with me, he's turning the focus towards what authority and the end times, what is to come? I'm going to be crucified, is what Jesus is saying. And he starts seeding that picture in and, and turning the camera towards those things. He shows up on scene they challenge his authority. He forecasts uh, his crucifixion. And then there's three stories and really kind of a fourth back-to-back, to back-to-back, to back, to back, in which they are coming to him and as individual groups challenging Jesus in some way. Again, trying to trap him. So the first one is the Pharisees, and they come they say taxes. Who should we give this money to? Should we give it to God because it's God's or should we give it to Caesar because really should we recognize the human institution and pay taxes? And Jesus, in his wisdom, takes a coin and says, whose picture is this? Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Recognizing both, yes, there are taxes and yes, there is God. And and there's parts of both of them, but I'm not going to blaspheme for the sake. I'm going to honor God in all of it. So Pharisees is great. Next, Throws the smack down a little bit. Comes up, the Sadducees come up, and these guys are all about resurrection. Jesus, there was a guy and a girl, and they got married, and the guy died, and so the brother married her and he died, and the next brother married, and they keep on going. They all like who is she gonna be married to in the resurrection when the heaven heaven happens? <sighs> Alright, guys. Here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna be like the angels. No one will be married or marry let me tell you straight what it's going to be like. Again, setting straight the truth of God and getting out of these traps. And these groups, it's, first it's the Pharisees with taxes, then it's the Sadducees with, with resurrection. They keep trying to trap him or trying to catch him in some fall point, but he, he, he gets out of them. And so then we see this next scene, and this is where we're going to land for the, the big chunk of today. Because instead of a group coming and fully challenging Jesus, there is a single scribe hanging out in the temple that day, going about his business, doing his scribal duties, I'm sure, whatever that looked like, and he's overhearing all of this argument, and they're arguing, and they're arguing, and Jesus is answering so well that this scribe is stirred, not as these scribes came and challenged the authority of Jesus, but Mark sets this story up to be different because it's a scribe. Who heard that Jesus had answered well, came to him and asked the question, "Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important command? Which one?" And you get this sense that Mark is saying the authority is being pressed. The authority is being pressed. But there's there's one guy who has this earnest heart to say. I know my job. I know what we believe. Yeah, the Pharisees are all about the political arena and the Sadducees are all about the resurrection and the age to come. And me, scribes, we're supposed to be all about the law. But you're doing such an amazing job of answering all these questions. I see, I see the truth in what you're saying and I would love to hear what you have to say about which one of these is the greatest command, the most important command. For this scribe, there was there's over six hundred and something commands in the Levitical law in the Old Testament. All these do's and don't do's, right? And he's basically coming and saying, I know all six hundred and something of them. Which one's the most important? Jesus responds: The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So all your strength. Second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater command than these. So the scribe comes and asks the most important command. Jesus, ready? Go. I want to ask the scribe kind of two questions right now. I can't, so I'll fill in his answers for you. First, what does he mean by command? What what is the point and the purpose? Where do these commands come from? And I think even as we're looking at the story of Mark and seeing that there's themes that are stretched across it, we have to look also that Mark is set into the context of the biblical narrative as a whole. And what happens in the beginning is that Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with God. There's flourishing of life. The work is getting done. and He's not even sweating it. It's great. And then they disobey. They had like a couple of commands. You can eat anything except for that. Good luck. Dah! We missed it. They ate it. They get kicked out. They have to work hard. A couple other things happen. We get to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They go down to Egypt. They multiply like crazy. We get to Exodus. Moses leads them out of slavery, and it's in the desert that they're given the commandments of God. The, 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 you know, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all of those are coming through Moses in that time and state. It's after these people of God have already been established as the people of God, so there's relationship there, that these commands are given. And I want to assert that the commandments are given to lead the people back to the flourishing of life that was intended from the beginning. That something happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed and said, if you eat this, you will surely die. Basically, life will start to shrivel or wither or diminish because of your disobedience. Now, there's cause and effects, but it all is wrapped up in, just don't, just listen to my, my command, don't, don't do it. And so for the people of God, they come into the desert and they're given these, these extensive, extensive commands. But I want to suggest today that the commandments are are less intended for the sake of just obey because I told you to, and more so out of a heart that God has for us of love that says I want the best for you, I want life to abound for you, these are the ways that will lead you to life, and life in abundance. And so he gives all these commands, and I just want to take a moment to go through what I'm really talking about with the flourishing life that comes from commands, obedience to commands of God. Uh, First one, Sabbath. Think of a Sabbath rest. It's the command for the sake that we just obey God and take it, fine, I won't work today, which a lot of us fail at, right? Let's work on this one. Because really what happens in a Sabbath rest is that it is for the benefit, for the flourishing of life of ourselves, for the renewing of our minds, for the rest of our bodies, for the rest of our trying to have to frantically go about and expend energy. And God's saying, No, 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 no. You, you, the way that you're created, you need times of rest. You need a rhythm of rest. When you rest, your creativity will come back and surge. It will be replenished just by, just by resting. When you rest, your strength will come back. Every night we sleep. And every morning we wake up a little clearer in our minds, a little stronger in our bodies. And he's saying, not just at night, but also a whole day, I want you to rest. Man was not made for the Sabbath as though it's just a law to obey, but the Sabbath for man, because I want the flourishing of life and of rest in you. And therefore, would you you obey this command? Obey it. It's for you. Another example, the land was supposed to rest every seventh year. So they would work the land, they would grow produce, they would, they would harvest and cultivate. And then they are supposed to do that for sixth years. And on the seventh year, they're supposed to give the land a break. Why? So that the flourishing of life from the land could have time to regroup. That the soil could replenish. That any toxins could wash away. So that life could return hey, don't harvest. What happens when they didn't obey? The land grew weary, it dried out, the nourishment wasn't there anymore, and the harvest didn't do as good. Ceremonial cleansing of dishes. Again, the commands are supposed to bring us back to a flourishing of life. Why would cle- like washing my cup bring me about life? Well, 6,000 years later, we know about germs. Hence our conveniently located hand sanitizer when we serve communion, right? We know about germs, but back then they're saying, God's saying, hey, obey this commandment. Cleanse your, your cups and your plates in these ways. Why? Because life will flourish because the germs will be cleaned from it. Jubilee years, forgiveness of debts. This is the flourishing of economic life. I, I care about you. I care about your health. I care about the land. Guess what? I'm, all, I'm, in, I'm in everything. I care about your, your economic status, your life in that way. Every 50th year, forgive debts. Let it be the year of jubilee. Forgive them. Why? So that your economy, so that neighbor-to-neighbor neighbor businesses can flourish because they're not held back and strained by the weight of debt. You will advance farther in the forgiveness than you will if you hold on to it. Forgive debt every 50 years. It's a commandment. And then there's other things. Don't eat pork. Why? Well, it's, I mean, it's pretty good, I guess, but maybe it's not as nutritionally beneficial as some of the other meats that they were eating. The things that were ceremonial, clean versus unclean. Uh, you can get into commandments like forgive your neighbor. Why? Is there something that happens inside? Is life? Is it? There's there more room for it when we're not holding a grudge, but we're able to forgive and extend that forgiveness. So when, when Jesus is answering this question, what is the most important command, I want to I challenge us to think that when we hear command, it is not the school taskmaster God over us, but it's the God who so loves us and created us and is bringing us back and into his redemptive work that he's saying, I want flourishing life in you and that's the way that my commands lead you in. Commandments that lead us in the way of life. Perfect. The second part of it, not just what is... What is a command? But what does it mean that it's the most important of all the commands? James Edwards, in his uh, commentary on Mark, says it this way. The sense of this question is thus not which is the most important commandment, but rather which commandment supersedes everything and is incumbent on all humanity, including Gentiles. Basically, the scribe is saying, I I, I got this thing. I know all of the commandments. Which one is the most? Which one is the foremost? Which one is all penetrating, all saturating of all of creation that if we were to follow it, life would abound amongst us? I love the fact that Jesus responds with, love God, love your neighbor. If you walk in those ways, life will abound. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, comments on this idea in this way. This is about far more than how to construct a code of personal ethics. The Jewish law begins with worship, with the love of God. Because if it's true that we're made in God's image, we will find our fullest meaning, our true selves, the more we learn to love and worship the one we are designed to reflect. Our fullest meaning, our truest selves the more that we worship, that we love God and love our neighbor. So how do these commandments bring us about to the life of God? If it's true that in the context of Mark, they're challenging his authority and this scribe, in the midst of the Pharisees and the Sadducees challenging Jesus, comes in with an earnest question of, Lord, I'm looking for what way Do we live? What is the the foremost importance of, of obeying what command to bring about the flourishing of life that you've intended for us? And he comes and he says, it's love. It's love. Love your neighbor. Love God first. Love. Because there's something about our human position that either wants to detach from the love of God for a myriad of reasons or to, to turn inward and protect and detach from the people around us. I was a psych minor in, uh, in college Multnomah in Portland, Oregon and in that psych class we, we studied tons of case studies and I don't know if you nerd out on case studies of like, they studied 10,000 people and this is what they found. But that's the internet article I always click. Like, oh, what did they find? Like, what's the human condition that's continually popping up? And one of the studies that they did was they, they looked at children and the way that they were attached or their relationship with their parents when being introduced into a new environment with other kids, other parents, and toys, pretty much. So they walk into a playroom with their parent. What does the kid do? And they found predominantly it was a spectrum with kind of the healthy mark right in the middle that on one side of the spectrum would be the kids who, when they walked into the room, would just refuse to leave their parent they, kicking and screaming could not make them walk over to the toys and grab a toy. They would just cling to mom and dad's leg, and they, they would just, just scream murder if they tried to get out. Like, no, I'm sticking with my parent. There's no way I'm leaving this, this figure in my life. The other side, the opposite side of the spectrum, was the kids who, when they walked into the room, literally like, had no basically, re- recollection that their parents even existed. And they walk in and they're, toys! Ah! And they would just go and play. And while they were playing, there wasn't even this, I wonder where my parent is. There was, there was a total kind of detachment of that relationship once there's something else set in front of them. And what the psychologists and studies found was that the healthiest children, those with the, the, most, uh, the most emotional health and capacity to be able to feel, to feel well, to respond well, that were, they were in themselves the most whole of these children— were the ones that walked into the room and they didn't cling to their parent and they didn't run from their parent, but they walked into the room and they recognized that their parent was kind of their home base. They walked in and they go, can, can we go play? Can I go play? Will you be right here? We're, okay, okay, and they would go play either with their parent or without. And they would do it in such a way, too, if they were playing and their parent was maybe standing on the side of the room, every now and then they would look over at their parent and make sure that they were still in this relationship, going, okay, it's not just about me and what's going on here, but I'm also making sure it's you too. Okay, great. And I, my little son, William, I, your parents probably get this. I don't know how, like, it's a game, apparently, and I think it's really cute. But he will be playing with two blocks, banging them together like crazy, and then it'll be silent, and he's just staring at you, waiting for you to stare back. And I'm sitting there doing something, maybe cooking dinner or whatever, and it just goes silent, and then if you don't look, he'll start going, heh, heh. And you look over him, and he kind like, he gets this really pleased, like, ha, and then like he'll go back to playing on his blocks. And he will play that game for, seriously, like half an hour, an hour long. Just He's fine playing, but he wants to make sure that you know that he knows that you know that you're all like in this thing together, right? Like me, you, great, we got it. That's not the perfect story one-to-one, but I want to say a lot of us, we fall in error maybe of clinging to God, to the, to the detriment of human relationships. Maybe something happened at some point. We were vulnerable and we got burned or hurt deeply, or there's a tough spot that we're working through with somebody, and so we like shove off this human element. And we're it's just me and God, man. Like, like I'm good. it's like the mystics, man. Just me and God, like all day long, and I can just be in isolation, just me and God. And there's something of that that's like, earnest-hearted that just going, yeah, that's great. But the fullness of life that God has for you is to set you in community with other people still. You can't just say, I got God, and now it's isolation. He still says, I turn you, go and experience the community as well. The other, the other pitfall is, is being on the side that says, you know what? I recognized God until I walked into this experience or this room or this whatever, but really it's all about the people around me. And something has happened that has disordered our love for God in such a way that's your life, if, if the Christian faith holds that life itself comes from God, is created by God, and that He has set it in such a dynamic that says to fully live continually is to remain in relationship and in proximity and closeness with Him because He is the source, He is life itself. And when we detach from that, maybe slowly, Parts of life start to die. There's a life of God that is it's almost intangible, but that requires his presence in our lives. And so if the goal and the aim truly is of this scribe and he's coming up and asking Jesus, Lord, which one is the most important command? You've, he doesn't say, Lord, teacher. You've answered really well. Which one's the most important command? Which, what, what do I obey that brings about The fullness of life. And Jesus responds, Love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. These, these things are the fullness of the greatest, of the most important, of the first that we should be doing as humans to understand and to live and to walk in the the full life of God. The flourishing life of God. The story ends in this way. The scribe, I don't know if this is cheeky of the scribe. I don't know if you guys even use the word cheeky. But I feel in this moment he's kind of cheeky. Because the Lord answers and then the scribe answers... Truly, you have answered well. Like, he's, he's giving Jesus, like, a little fist bump, like, well done, I totally agree, and repeats back to him what he just said. He said, all this is, is greater than burnt sacrifices and offerings, which, for a scribe who's spending his time in the temple, he's, and there's, the scene is in the temple, they're coming against the temple worship saying, really, the, the best you can do is to come and to bring your sacrifices and your offerings, and Jesus is saying... The the law of the Lord, it's kind of that into your right quote, it, it it first and foremost, it's always love. Love of God, love of neighbor. The rest of it falls in line after that. And so the scribe says, Hey, good job. And responds back with the same and says that. And then Jesus says back to him, and when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. I think it's, it's, it's so unique in this situation that it's a single scribe with a good heart just going, Lord, earnestly I'm asking this question. Teacher, earnestly asking this question. And they have this discourse back and forth. They pat each other on the back. Good answer, good answer. And at the end of that, Jesus is still telling them, you're not far. You're pretty close. Like, you're, you're really close. And I want to suggest that in the midst of, yes, there is an element of loving God, and yes, there is an element of loving others, one of, if not the thing, that truly unlocks that life of God in our lives is a recognition and confession of who Jesus is. The book of Mark, front to back, is spent setting up, this is Jesus, with what authority are you doing these things? My authority is that I'm God. The voice opens up, and he's, miracles, signs, wonders, all of it, this is God, this is God, this is God. This is the way to the Father. This is the one who has come to say, I have, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. And still the scribe is standing before that, man, God, Jesus, and going, you're right, it is love, it's love of God, it's, it's, it's love of man. You're right, you're not far from the kingdom. And maybe the point that he's missing in that last is recognizing and confessing that Jesus is God. Peter has just done it two chapters prior, but who do you say? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The centurion at the cross after Jesus is crucified, surely this was the Son of God. There is this theme through Mark, and he's going, you're so close, you got it, but so much of my life now hinges on your, your, your faithful witness and declaration and confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the way to the Father, that Jesus is the life of God come down, that Jesus is the one that, yes, the commandments will get us so far, but it's by faith that you will be saved. That eternal life is dependent upon our, our recognition and our confession that Jesus is the life of God. We get to come to this table now and to partake in this again. And if, if you could, I, I just want to lead you through just a moment with the Lord. So if you could just close your eyes with me. And I think us, too, are often like the scribe. We're so good-hearted. We're so in love with God, and we're in love with what God's doing, and, and man, I love my neighbor and my family and my friends. And there's some part of us, maybe not the full, maybe we've confessed Jesus, but there's some part of us that God's saying, your confession just Speak it out. You need me. That I, I am the fullness. I'm the flourishing of life. And just confess, you can't do this marriage thing without me. If you really want the fullness of life from your marriage, it requires my presence and my gospel intertwined with it. Or there's this part that says, Lord, I'm really great except for all of these grudges that I've held for so long. And God's going, yeah, you love me and you love others. Confess forgiveness. Let the flourishing life come in because of your confession. Let it go. You're being being suffocated in certain parts of your life because of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Life is not abounding, it's being suffocated. Confess, let it go. Let the fullness come back. And maybe it's that we just are so close, but we've never recognized Jesus for who he is and the authority that he is over us. That he is the authority over life and death. He's the authority that redeems us. That takes away the sin of the world. And it's just that confession. God, I've always kind of loved you, but I've never confessed that Jesus is the way to your fullness of life. So, Lord, we come today desiring earnestly, like this scribe, your life in us, your life to abound. We want to walk in the way of life. that Jesus, you are the way of life. And we come to confess that we need you. We need your instruction. We need your guidance to be able to do this well. We want you, Lord. And we recognize, Jesus, that you are the son of the living God. And that you're one step away. You're right there. You're right in front of us. And that we need you. And you're cleansing. And you're empowering. And your forgiveness and your graciousness, your mercies. We need these for the flourishing life. And that you yourself, you are the flourishing life of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So we confess you today.